Hello. Hello, John. <clears throat> oh, hi, Dan. Hi, what's up? Oh, just, uh, you know, just sitting around here getting uh, getting myself situated. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's... Uh, well, I went to a rock concert last night, and then I did the... I did the old-fashioned après rock concert thing, which is I came home and ate a bar of chocolate and a box of macaroni and cheese. With that but spoon was, that you're talking, you've been brandishing. Yeah, but yeah. it was like, you know, it was 3 o'clock in the morning. I had no business eating a box of macaroni and cheese. Oh, I didn't yeah. have no, no business eating a box of macaroni and cheese in the middle of the day. Yeah. So anyway, so I'm suffering a little bit from that series of poor choices. You know, I think when I was younger, I used to be able to get home from something, concert, movie, whatever, and just kind of like, you know, get changed, go to bed and go right to bed. Hmm. And now I feel like I I still need a certain amount of wind, winding down time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I don't think you were out of line doing what you did. Well, no, but you know, they generally say you don't want to eat a whole big huge meal right before and then then immediately lay down is it the laying down of it like if you're conscious and you lay down you know like if you were to eat all the macaroni and then just sort of lay on the sofa not with the intent of going to sleep but just to sort of lay is that bad or is it the sleeping part that's bad i've always oh, I, th- this. I think they're both bad i think if you eat a thing you should then immediately go march around you should yeah. go march march to a nearby park do some bird watching uh, use a public drinking fountain, <laughs> but don't swim. Don't swim. Don't swim immediately after eating, <laughs> and then uh, march home. And that will, you know, that's the Jack Lalane model of <laughs> healthy living. Yeah, right. Maybe, maybe swim. But if you're going to swim, you should pull a tugboat with a chain in your mouth. Um, and then you're healthy and vigorous, and you mm-hmm. live to be a thousand years old, and you never have any pains. On an average night, how much sleep do you aim for? Do you try to get? Well, I don't aim for a quantity. That's one of the things because generally I don't have a specific time that I have to be awake. So I don't, it's not like, it's not like I'm up against a hard stop, mm-hmm. which is in, in, in the past when I've had, a, uh, which <laughs> frankly was a long time ago where I had something I had to be up every day at the same time for. Yeah. As you're laying there at night or you're sitting and eating macaroni and cheese and it's <laughs> 2 a.m. and you're just, you're looking forward and you're just like every second more that I'm awake is one second less yeah. sleep I'm going to get. Right. Which is an awful feeling. Um, but generally I'm just going to get seven hours of sleep no matter what, because I, if I go to bed at four o'clock in the morning, I'll just sleep until I've had seven hours. You can do that. Like you could go to bed. If you went to bed, let's just say you go to bed at midnight tonight, you'll mm-hmm. wake up automatically at seven in the morning or is your body more tuned into a, a time? Because like for me, if I go to sleep and I think this is what our listeners want to hear. Yeah. If, yeah, I, for go, sure if I go to sleep at 11 and I wait, I'll wake up at six, six thirty. If I go to sleep at two, I'll still wake up at like six or six thirty, even though oh, I don't really? want. Yeah, even though I don't want to. Yeah. Are you saying you're just you get that seven hours locked in, no matter when you start? Well, so if I because I lo- I would love to have that. If I went to sleep at ten or eleven p.m., I yeah. would almost certainly wake up at three o'clock in the morning, going, "What the fuck? Right. Why were you? Why were you asleep already? Yeah. 
because I don't go to sleep at 10 p.m. And I'm normally, I'm not necessarily always awake at three in the morning, but I'm definitely always awake at two in the morning. Hmm. And so those times when I'm really tired or I sit down, lay down for a late nap and it's, you're not supposed to take a nap at 10 PM. Then I'm, then I'm in a little bit of trouble cause I'll wake up and I'll wake up in the middle of the night and be like, Oh boy. Yeah. Uh, if I were to go to sleep at midnight, I'm, I'm, I might sleep until 7 a.m., but that doesn't mean I would get up at 7 a.m. I would wake up. I would look around. I'd go like, I feel like I got a good night's sleep. And I'd look at my phone. They would tell me it was 7 in the morning. And that would be a wonderful, wonderful feeling because I would feel completely justified in going back to sleep and sleeping mm-hmm. for another three hours. Yeah, And that stolen sleep, right, The 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 extra... The fungible sleep. Like what? Three more hours of three more hours where I, I owe nothing to the guilt bank. Uh, is the greatest kind yeah. of sleep. That's that's the sort of like that's the five more minutes that stretches to three hours. But then the, then uh, the the flip side of that, of course, is if I do have something to do at eight eight in the morning, it, at, which is generally like a doctor's appointment or some other kind of interaction with the straight world then i then i'm gonna get about four hours of sleep and i can do that i can do that three times a week get four hours of sleep Mm -hmm. and it and i don't go to bed early the following night i'll stay right up until three o'clock in the morning again but but it starts to take its toll and that's that's where that extra three hours of sleep that's, you know, sometimes edges into what, 11 hours now or so, or yeah. 10 or 11 hours of sleep. That's when that, that, and I, and I, I'm not sure there are, I think a lot of doctors that listen to this program. Mostly, gonna, most of our audience is doctors. Yeah. And I would like to put them all together, uh, in a big sort of small stadium and, uh, let them fight it out with each other. Uh, preferably with sticks, but you know, they have a, doctors have a lot of different opinions about things, uh, primarily about other doctors. Yes. But I don't think any doctor would say that sleep works that way where you get, you can, you can sleep for four hours a night, three nights a week, and then 12 hours a night, two nights a week, and then seven hours a night one night and be sort of evened out, but I'm not sure. Maybe there are doctors. Maybe there's a kind of, there's a branch of chiropractic that, that, uh, that would, that also feels like sleep is just this strange additive component. If you, you can go one month without sleep and then sleep for a month, sleep for half a month. Well, it's, you know, anytime that I read about sleep or I, some new sleep study comes out, the information's always so different from anything else that came before it. Like there was this one study that came out not that long ago that, that was saying that, you know, like they looked at how people in, you know, in different cultures sleep and compared it to like the way we sleep here in the, you know, in America. And they say that it's very normal for people to sort of like, I, I guess I'd always read that, People would fall asleep at sundown because you couldn't do anything else. Sundown can't do anything much. But then they said, no, that's not true. They would sit by the campfire 
you know, talking and singing and doing whatever ancient peoples. Mm, they sang a lot, the ancient yeah, peoples. Yeah, sitting by the campfire and telling stories and all oh, of this Oh, they were stuff. a merry storytelling people. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But that they would, they would do that well into the night and that they would they would sleep and that they weren't necessarily sleeping for a solid eight hour block that they might sleep for four hours then they'd sort of get up in in the middle of the night and do something and make a snack or whatever you would do right a snack or or play their primitive banjos right but that it was normal to have these sort of sleeping periods where you'd sleep for a few hours you'd wake up be up in the middle of the night then you'd have another time period where you'd sleep again and then get up in the morning. And that, that the, this notion that we have of getting like a solid block of sleep is maybe not actually the way that human beings evolved or have been sleeping all along. Because maybe it wasn't safe to sleep some deep, deep sleep for nine hours. Like that's maybe not human. No, you're the saber toothed tigers right. would get that's in and right. eat your banjo. That's right. You know what's there's something about the modern culture where we are really spending a lot of emotional energy trying to imagine our our prehistoric past. Like I don't think that people in 1950 or 1850 uh thought the same way about our ancient forebears. And particularly didn't think about them in terms of like like a people to emulate or return to. They were, yeah, you're right. They wanted to be as far away from that as they could. Sure. If, if they had any real like clear picture of prehistoric men or it was that they were cavemen mm-hmm. and, uh, and they were, you know, something to mock or something to imagine either that we had progressed beyond or that, that um, were unrelated to us. Right. Right. But now we're, and I, and I've I've thought about this a little, but you know, the paleo diet is another example of this sort of try imaginative recreation of what we, what, what we think people were like and how that was somewhat somehow better than how we are. And and our current state is at war with, with nature and with our own natures. And if we can return to eating, um, this, you know, very, very basic hunter gatherer diet. And if we can return to the second sleep pattern of midnight wakefulness and, and, you know the kind and there's exercise programs that also sort of not claim but 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 hope to imagine and then then people start imagining these worlds and they get very confident about imagining them Mm -hmm. because it's happening in their mind and so it seems as real to them as anything and they're like no 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 in ancient times people just ate leaves and they picked through dung to find the seeds and that is all you should eat because that's what your body is made to do. And it's like, well, I guess, you know, we don't really know uh, 50,000 years of, of modern humans and a written record that only goes back a handful of thousand years. And so there's tens of thousands of years that people were, for the most part, just exactly as we are now. Mm-hmm. And no 
real sign of what they were doing. Not even really very good jewelry to dig up out of the ground. <laughs> yeah. You know, like nothing, no, no real record. Certainly not a record that they intended for future people to read. Right. And so, <clears throat> I mean, I think about that stuff too and imagine part of part of the reason i went on my long walk across europe i mean a, a very conscious motivation for that was that there was there was something about long methodical migrationary trekking that was that was native to human beings it was mm-hmm. something we were separated from by our modern conveyances and and just like the you know, just like all the many, many, many people who came across the Caucasus, if you if you look at almost any modern group uh, as an archaeologist or as a historical archaeologist, and you say, where did these people come from? Where did the, you know, where did the Germans come from? Well, they must have come over the Caucasus Mountains at one point. Well, where did the Celts come from? Well, they were earlier across the Caucasus Mountains. And it's never been clear to me in our in the human progression into Europe out of Africa exactly I mean looking at the map <clears throat> looking at the map, you would not assume when they got to Syria that they would automatically have all turned right <laughs> right like if all the people of Europe came from the over the Caucasus and the people over there uh, had come from Africa. Why, what, what, what happened in Syria that everybody went right? Why didn't some of them go left? It seems maybe there's a sign. They were just following a sign. First yeah, person right there. It's like, go right here. The, they got to the Bosphorus and they were like, <laughs> I don't know. You know, we've crossed a lot of rivers, but this, this channel is one too far. All right. And so, so anyway, I got this, I got this notion of, you know, the, just successive waves of people and trying to picture them in all their prehistoric glory with their, you know, with their fur coats mm-hmm. and, and their leather shoes and like pre wheel in some cases marching with their families and so forth. And, and of course it probably wasn't a March so much as it was that we're talking about so, such, you know, such an epic amount of time that like, there was a little gathering and then somebody moved a mile down the river. There was a new gathering. It was probably less like that. There were people in Mongolia and they were like to the West (laughs) and just kept marching until they got to France. Right. It was, you know, it was more gradual, but I, I, I went on this long, this long, long walk trying actually in some ways to activate some dormant physicality so that, through my muscles, I would know more about what it was to be human. Hmm. And through my, you know, not privation exactly, but like that wake up with the sun, walk all day, go to sleep with the, with the dark, um, that it would reset, re, not reset, but like recalibrate me so that I could approach modern life with a, with a feeling of, more belonging because I felt so estranged and, uh, I didn't, it it did not have that effect. You know, I don't, I, there were times certainly where there was, there was tremendous meditative, meditative Mm -hmm. experience, but, 
but that wouldn't have been something that, you know, like if, if I'm talking about a migration of people, they would have been talking to each other, presumably. Yeah. They wouldn't have just been walking in silence. Right. In the ancient times, you probably didn't have, unless they were on some kind of like vision quest, you probably wouldn't have someone really traveling alone the way that we can do now. No, not at all. Of course, you'd set off on a, you'd set off with your merry band, right? You'd yeah. have a mage and you'd, you'd have a, uh, you'd have a, a couple of clerics and uh-huh. a, then there'd be <laughs> Druid. A, sure. And paladin and sword, sword fighter mm-hmm. and uh, a ranger and a dog. So, so yeah, I don't know what, I don't, it, it, it feels now like a fairly incomplete and spontaneously generated picture of what some pre a, a group of people must have been like that was motivating me to go. And if I had been aware of the paleo diet at the time, I don't think I could have sustained it because most of the, most of where I was, what was available for cheap was carbonated sugar water and cigarettes. Mm-hmm. That won't sustain you in, on the paleo diet so well. No, but, but, but if, if I'd been enough aware or if the paleo diet had existed, I guess in 2000, uh, so named or 1999, I, uh, I'm, you know, I might have, I might've tried to do that too, because that's what I was, that's what I was seeking, right? A kind of paleo life. Right. But I mean, I love the, I love the notion of second sleep because it comports with how I live, but I can't imagine working in a, in an office and trying to practice a second sleep style life. Yeah. You're definitely not, not going to get to watch your shows. You know, you're not going to, you're not going to get to sit down and watch walking dead. Right. Because you're going to be going to sleep at 8 PM. And then I don't think that the second sleep life philosophy really works. If you wake up at two in the or wake up at midnight and watch walking dead, that seems like a, it seems like you're just going to lose walking dead. And who's prepared to do that, Dan Benjamin? Our first sponsor today is Blue Apron. Blue Apron, I'm really enjoying the Blue Apron food. What what this is, this is a company that wants to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. And they do this by supporting a more sustainable food system, by setting the highest standards for ingredients, and by building a community of home chefs like me now i'm part of this community i'm like never really thought of myself as like a chef or like even a very good cook but they send you stuff like i'm holding this one right here this is this week's meal seared salmon and lemon aioli with red potato asparagus and collard green hash someone would say that and i'd be like oh right i could order that at a restaurant i don't know how to make that i could probably never make that guess what yes i can make that they give you this really nice thick uh, magazine quality recipe with photographs and directions that are really good. And you just, it's, it's, you just follow the directions and you come out with like an amazingly good dinner. And they have partnerships with 150 local farms, fisheries, ranches, all, all of that, all over the U.S. So they're getting seafood that's sourced sustainably. They get beef that's raised humanely, chickens that are free range, pork that's uh, raised naturally. 
and they can deliver it to like 99% of the continental US. It's pretty awesome. So then you cook, you cook together, cook with your, with your spouse, cook with your kids, show them that they can get food that's better than what you get in a restaurant and you make it yourself and that it's really good for you. And they do this very affordably. You spend under 10 bucks per person for a healthy, delicious meal. And this one right here, this is this, is this week's. There's a few this week. Middle Eastern chicken and chickpea stew, uh, pita croutons. I don't even know what that is, pita croutons. Crispy cod, cabbage slaw, tacos with pepita pineapple and avocado salsa. Like, this is great stuff. It's not boring. You're trying to figure out what you want to eat, what you're going to make. Forget about it. They got it taken care of. So here's what you do. The best ingredients, amazing suppliers, family-run farms, like all of this for less than 10 bucks a meal, pre-portioned ingredients. They send you everything and you make it. So check out this week's menu and you'll get two meals free with shipping by going to blueapron.com slash roadwork. Again, blue apron.com slash roadwork two meals free with free shipping you're gonna love it it tastes great feels good to get you know to help the environment save the earth and uh, and don't wait blueapron.com slash roadwork a better way to cook go check it out well you bring up you bring up a number of interesting things and you've talked before on our show about your your long walk and for a lot of people, that's one of these things that, like, in, like, I think my parents' time period, people who were coming into their adulthood in mid-late 60s, that was kind of a normal thing to do, to, not, to maybe not go to college or not go right away or to travel or to hitchhike around the country. And I think even into the 70s, right, people were still hitchhiking quite a bit and just saying, you know what? I've got a backpack and that's all I really need. I'll travel the world with this. And now I think, especially coming from Americans, I don't really know any Americans who are doing that still or who have really done that. Like if I were to go and kind of take an uh, informal poll of my friends, I don't think any of them did it. You're one of the few people that I am friends with who is really said, I'm going to go and do this thing. But your whole life had been on kind of a different track to get you to that point. Whereas I think it was mainstream to do, to like just go backpack across another country. That was much more of a mainstream thing to do in the 60s and and 70s, don't you think? Or do I have it wrong? Well, I think that the, I think that the culture, the culture sort of lionized that behavior but it was still a very very small group of people actually doing that type of thing you know it was that was the fashion but there there really aren't that many people that pra- that really practically I, I i think there are still a lot of people that graduate pr- probably more often graduate from college and go to, you know drive around the country once or I'm not exactly sure what, what the modern version of it is, but you know, I read a statistic the other day that, that seemed to indicate that the number of people 
who even not abuse drugs, but the oh. number of people who have even taken an illegal drug yeah. globally is like a fraction of a single percent, like 0.05. Are you talking about like illegal drugs or for non-prescription style? Any, any kind of, you know, from smoking pot to chewing quat. Uh-huh. Um, and when we think about the, when we think about the prevalence of the notion of drugs in our culture, you know, if you, if you were to just sort of ask me randomly, like how many people in America do you think have taken drugs? Right. I'm like all, all drugs, you know, well, illegal drugs, illegal drugs. I would say what? 30, 40%. Because right. I, I would guess 40%. Yeah, because I live in a world where drugs are just part of the conversation and the movies you watch and the music you listen to, like drugs are just, it, they're just in the mix. But I think that's not true for the, the vast majority of people. And so, so I, I think it's, it's one of those things where if you watch movies from the 60s and listen to music from the 60s and you knew somebody who did live like that in the 60s, it's easy to say like, shit, half the... Half the people who graduated from high school in 1968 just just threw all their stuff in a denim bag and and uh, stuck out their thumb. But I think that's actually that's actually not accurate. You know, right. like George George W. Bush graduated from college in 1968 and he didn't stick out his thumb and go hitchhike around America. And and I think most people did. Because that is hard, uncomfortable work. I mean, I had a good friend, my high school friend, um, high school best friend. He, I think like a lot of people who knew me at that age, you know, I was, I was living romantically and a lot of what, a lot of what romance is, is that it looks pretty cool from a distance. Yeah. And so I think I inspired a, a, uh, a handful of people who knew me in high school to also try and go around America or go or go live, uh, live that kind of vagabond life. But, but they didn't want to live on the skids. And so my friend bought, he's a good friend of mine, knew me well. And he bought a Ford Aerostar and he put his stuff in the back of the Ford Aerostar and he drove, he did one lap of America and a, and a, and a good lap. Um, the Ford Aerostar is a minivan, an early minivan, not yeah. the, not the, the Dodge Caravan, which was the first minivan, but the Aerostar was the Ford response to the Dodge Caravan. And, um, and he was, you know, he was sleeping in the Aerostar. So it was, it was rough. He was roughing it, but it, but it wasn't quite uh, anything like hitchhiking or or camping or or really even following your bliss. I guess, which was what always motivated me. Like when I stuck out my thumb somewhere, I'd had no, or 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 often just a very flimsy idea of where I was headed. Mm-hmm. Um, stick out your thumb and say, I'm going to Chicago. Yeah. It's like, well, you're in Portland. That's a long way. There's a lot that's going to happen between, uh, particularly if you're sticking out your thumb, right? You're just, 
no one is going to pull over and say, hell, I'm going to Chicago too. <laughs> yeah. You know, they're, they're going to pull over and say, I'm going to the Dalles. And you go, great, I'll take a ride with you. Sure. And so, but, but getting in a, getting in a minivan with a, with a, with a plan, right. You, you, and I, and I, and I think even if you don't map it out in advance, you know, when you wake up in the morning and you point your car in a direction, you're looking at the signs and you, you're, you're in charge of your own destiny in a way. So, so I think of those styles as being only, only sort of related to one another. You, you are definitely like headed out on an adventure, but, but there's a big difference between having control over your own forward motion and, and leaving that up to chance or to opportunity. And the people who are prepared to go out the door and leave their destination up to opportunity, it, that is a, that's a much, much smaller group of people. And so the, so the experiences you have there are, are, um, are singular. And when you, ta- when you tap them together, when you, when you, when you knit them together, then you're, that's, you know, that, that becomes a, that that's a lifestyle and then it creates a, a, a worldview. Right. And that's, that's kind of what I, um, that's what shaped me it, and, and contributed to the, to my worldview was just this, um, these I've several years that I lived, uh, just on the wind like that. I mean, I was thinking that <clears throat> the other day about the number of times that I would, uh, that I was riding in a car and the car turned up a small road and I had that thought of like, are these guys gonna do me wrong up here? Like that feeling of being in a, being in a, in a car with some people that you just met who you're gradually realizing are more unstable than you initially thought. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's baked into sticking out your thumb on the side of the road, right? The people that are going to pull over are already self-selecting. They're they're a much smaller group of people than the than the number of people that are on the road. <clears throat> you stand there with your thumb out and you watch all kinds of interesting people drive by. And you go, that's that would be an interesting. Wow, look at that. That's a cool car. That's an interesting. That person has a cool face, but they're they're not pulling over. And I used to think I would stand there and I would think <clears throat> over the hill right now over the hill is going to come a Volkswagen bus and they're going to be a couple of <laughs> college girls that are on a trip across America. And they're going to say, look at that cute guy. He's the same age as us. And he's just look, he looks so cute and lonely. Let's get him. And, uh, or, or I would say like <clears throat> a 40 year old woman who's running away from her conventional life in a red Jaguar. <laughs> right. 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 going to come over that hill <laughs> and she's going to say, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to pick up this young yeah, stuff. That's what I need. And I'm going to take him around. I'm, you know, I'm going to show him a thing or two. And I would sit there with my, you know, my hand out just going like, please, please. If there's any fucking God in heaven, 
let that red jaguar come over the hill right now because I'm so tired and wet and alone. And I just want like a nice, I just want a nice friend. And frankly, there are a lot of things I could learn from a 40 year old woman in a red jaguar, things I want to know. And then (laughs) the, the car that picks you up is a rusty Chevy citation with two guys in it who have like weird Fu Manchu mustaches and they are like, Hey man. And they don't even ask you where you're going. They're like, get in. And you go, okay. Hey, what's up? What's up you guys? And they're like, let's go. We're on our way to a party. And I'd be like, well, that's better than, that's better than nothing. And then you're at a party that's super sketchy. I mean, so many times I would wake up at dawn look around with people like sprawled out on the floor and I was sprawled out on the floor and I would get up so quietly and get my little, you know, and I was afraid that my, my bag would be gone. Like that was all always your first thought. Like, Oh shit, did my bag get stolen? But no, there it is in the corner. You pick it up so quietly and just open that front door so quietly. You're just like, please let me out of here. Please let me out of here. Because if somebody wakes up, they're going to, they're gonna be like, "Hey, man, where are you going?" And then you're back in it, right? You can, then you're then you then you're then you're because the presumption, of course, is that you're friends with them now and party together. And so the next day, you're gonna go on, you're gonna accompany them on their next fucked up fire mission, right? And so it's just like I'll sneak out, and then I would be walking down some dirt road with no traffic on it, and thinking if I see a car coming. Do I hope to get a ride from them or do I jump into the bushes and hide because it might be like the search party from the, from the, the tar paper shack where I just woke up from some strange drug experience. And then you finally get out to a main road somewhere and you start to feel confident like I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to get out of this. This reminds me of the the last scene in, uh, in train spotting where he's like escaping the sort of. I don't ruin the movie, but where he's escaping yeah. the sort of like drug den and everyone's sprawled out everywhere and he's making well, his getaway. Yeah, he's making his getaway because he just stole a big pile of money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and I never had the big pile of money, right? Right. And what's so amazing about the end of train spotting is you have this feeling of like, yes, he's got the big pile of money. Yeah. And he's gonna go make a good life for himself. He's yeah. off the you know, he's off the drugs and here he goes. And whether or not he makes it we, we never know. We never know, right? And the, so many great movies end with somebody at the dawn of their new, their new life. And generally it's because they have some, something's changed, right? They've met, they've met a beautiful partner and the two of them are headed out mm. or they, they, or they got the pot of gold or something, you know, the, the protagonist has has achieved their dream somewhat. And now you're so hopeful for them like, or, or excited for them. And I really, really wanted that a lot. And it just never happened. I never met Natalie Portman. And <laughs> so I just kept sticking my thumb out and I kept ending up, uh, you know, I like got picked up one time by a guy that, and we're driving along and he pulled over, next to a orchard 
we, and we, I, it sounds like a cliche, but we were literally in like a 55, uh, like a 1955 Chevy pickup he pulls over and he's like, come on, help me out. And I'm like, all right. So we jump out, climb up onto the, onto the, like first into the bed of the truck. And then he got up on the roof of the truck and we start taking apples out of the tree that the part of the tree that's hanging over the fence mm-hmm. and he's like if it's over the fence then it's <laughs> it's fair game right it's fair game yeah <laughs> and we're like grabbing apples and throwing them into the into the bed of the truck and he's very conscious of the fact that like some guy is going to come out with a blunderbuss <laughs> and fill our you know fill our overalls full of buckshot yeah and, you know, and then we get back in the truck and we drive up to the next tree that is unfortunate enough to have some portion of it over the fence. And we fill up the back of the truck with apples. And then off we go and we're driving along and he's like, you know, I want you to come home with me. I want you to meet my wife. And he's not much older than me. You know, I'm 20 and he's probably 25 mm-hmm. up, a, up a dirt road, up a, up a hillside, up a, you know, truck's driving in a little stream for a while and keeps going up there and we get to this little place and meet his wife who's just adorable and she makes us bologna sandwiches and we go out and he's, his yard is full of hound dogs all <laughs> chained you know <laughs> hound dogs and I'm like what do y'all do up here Yeah, and he said oh I'm a bear poacher Wow. And I was like, tell me more. And he's like, oh, yeah, I make a living in poaching bear and just like my dad. And, uh, you know, it's it's got its upsides and its downsides. Of course, it's illegal to poach bear, but yeah. at the same time, there's a lot of that's stuff. Da- in- they do consider that a downside. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff inside of a bear that's, you know, that you can sell for a, for a lot of money. <laughs> like, he said, like what? Like what? Oh, he said, "Do you know? Do you know what what uh, they'll pay in Korea for a bear spleen?" I was like, "I do not know." And he's like, "Well, I mean, I don't really know either, but I sell them to a guy who sells them to a guy who sells them to who, who sneaks them in to Asia. These like West Virginia mountain bears have inner parts that this guy, at least, was getting paid." Or he imagined he was getting paid for for organs that were part of some international demand for particularly West Virginia bears. Really? I mean, and then he'd eat, eat the bear meat and skin the bear and the bear skin was worth something. You know, it's like, I can't imagine it's easy to hunt wild bear yeah. in Virginia with hound dogs. That just seems like, woo! Well, I think that the dogs, have you ever seen the the way they hunt these bears? They go, woo, 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 woo. Yeah, no, basically I, they they release a whole bunch of dogs. It's kind of, it's not fair and it's it's huh? kind of inhumane or. Not fair to the bear, you're saying? You know, like, I, first first of all, I, I'm i opposed to the whole bear hunting thing. Let me just mm-hmm. go on the record with saying right. that. Right, and, and you're opposed to like even authorized permit carrying bear hunters, let alone bear poachers. Like rogue, rogue bear hunters. Yeah. But they release the dogs and the dogs, I guess, easily track down the bear and begin barking. And I guess if there's enough dogs 
I guess, you know, in, in a one-on-one situation, the bear wouldn't bear be like, what's the big deal? It's one dog. Right. But if you right. get five dogs or 10 dogs or whatever. They tree the bear. They tree the bear. The bear is then up in the tree and then you just sort of take pot shots at it until it's <laughs> until it drops dead. And yeah, I mean, this guy did not give the impression of he was a he was a slim, handsome <laughs> uh, mountain fella. He didn't give the impression of wrestling the bear. Right. He very definitely, I think, treed the bear with his hound dogs and then took pot shots at it. Yeah. Uh, but that's just you know that's just a a um, a type of person which America is full of mm-hmm. that that I would never have met in a Ford Aerostar. And the only reason I met him was that I was running from these guys, running from these uh, meth heads that had picked me up the day before. So, uh, so it did, it did very profoundly make me feel like people are good for the most part. Even the meth heads were being generous. They wanted me to be their friend. I think they wanted, I think they thought maybe that we would still be friends now. Um, but everywhere you went and 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 it, this is a trope right that that the poorer people are the friendlier they are and the more generous they are but uh but that was my experience and and it yeah, as as much time as i spend kind of talking shit about everybody in america and everybody in the world in my heart i'm very confident that people are great even even people that you would think were awful were great and uh and that gives me a lot of confidence right or a lot of um it gives me not personal confidence but like confidence that we're headed in the right direction confidence that everything's going to be okay the people that that say because there's always somebody and it's always partly a movement of people that are like it's never been worse Things have never been worse. I, I hear that all the time now. Like about about our current time. Yeah, things have never this been time worse. Period we live in. And- this is the worst time ever. We're on the verge of total collapse. If one more thing goes wrong, we will we will choke on our own pollution, or there will be a revolution in the streets, or our rights will be deprived of our rights, or our our GMO laced food will turn into will turn into acid. <laughs> and uh, and I just think about I think about all these people out there who are just basically good and. I think about all the times in my own short life that I've heard some version of that, that the killer bees are sweeping up from Central America and we're all going to be stung to death or AIDS is sweeping the world and we're, you know, there are just going to be a few people left after AIDS consumes all people the bird flu, the fucking chicken flu was only a couple of years ago. Yeah. That, that, I mean, we played a show in Toronto right in this, right in the middle of the, the bird flu epidemic and everyone in Toronto was wearing a mask. Really? It was, it was insane walking around the streets because, because the, the hyperbole in the newspapers was that this is it. We have unleashed the, We've unleashed the plague. This is the influenza virus of 1917, except a thousand times more virulent and 
There's no cure. So get ready. Here comes mad cow disease, except in the form of chicken, chicken flu. Mm-hmm. And so all of those things, it's like, yeah, we're ne- <laughs> things are actually good. Things are better than they've ever been. And uh, that's not a very popular party trick to tell people that are that are that are really getting off on on their own apocalyptic vision of where we are to say, ah, no, things are as good as they've ever been better. Even nobody wants to hear that. It's too, it seems Pollyanna ish, Mm -hmm. but the statistics back it up, right? There's never, people have never had more rights. People have never been healthier. People, the world has never been more efficiently run. And also, I because and I think that's I think I have that worldview partly because I do not ascribe um, sinister motives to anybody, right? The people that I disagree with most, I don't think they're being sinister. I think they're they just have different they just have different feelings. But there is they are those feelings are absolutely authentic and they are one hundred percent sincere. I mean, it seems like in your, you've done a lot of things that people that I know, including me, have kind of said, yeah, that would be fun, but I don't really want to do it because, uh, you know what, that's how people get mugged or that's how people get killed or what, you know, whatever. And there have been many times when hey, you told the story here, what was it, a few episodes back when you were in Orlando and the, the oh. attempt, the attempted mugging took place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But they hadn't spent enough time in mugging school. school, right? Uh, I mean, to a lot of people, that could to you. It's it was you know it didn't seem very traumatic. It didn't you were you know you didn't have to spend a lot of time talking it out with a therapist. <laughs> you know, you just kind of went back to the bar and told your friends about it, and it became a funny story. And that seems to kind of be like the stuff that happens to you, like. Like things that happen to you, you, you seem like a very lucky person, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And that if, if I feel like if I were to put myself in some of these situations that it wouldn't, I wouldn't have fared so well. And yet you seem to fare well in most of these situations, if not, maybe all the ones you've told me about. And I like that. I mean, I I like that, that because it, it kind of renews my faith in humanity in a way, thinking that, well, like nothing bad seems to really happen. And <laughs> he goes and he does all these things that reasonable people would never do. And he's fine. So that says something, doesn't it? But what does it say? I don't know. Well, like I think back to, back to statistics or imagined what, what, what statistics actually are, what they actually say and what we imagine they say. I don't think that, the people we hear about who get mugged or raped or murdered are the, are the tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of a percentage of people who are, who are traveling in such a way that that seems scary and crazy. Right. I mean, people always say that to me, like, weren't you afraid of getting murdered? I'm like, no, the people that are getting murdered are being murdered by their estranged spouse 
in a comfortable suburban home right. or they're being murdered in the course of a carjacking. But even that, like statistically, right, the people that get murdered are getting murdered by their spouse or by a, by a close relative. There aren't that many people actually being killed, even in drive-by shootings or whatever it is that we're panicking about. They're being killed by people they know in their comfortable suburban lives. And there is a small, small world of people that are kind of living outside the law. And it's, you know, it's outlaw bikers and it's... um you know, drug, like drug networks where drugs are coming up from Mexico and there, you know, there are really, it's an administrative organization, a top down bureaucracy of people, but it, but it's illegal and it's happening kind of substrata. Right. Um, but that's a, that's a very small group of people and they, and they, uh, even though there's no honor among thieves, there is a, there is a Western, uh, a, 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 there's a system in place within that world. People aren't just killing each other there. It's an economy and people in that economy want nothing less than to attract attention to what they're doing mm-hmm. by committing violence on a citizen. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. You commit violence upon a citizen and that attracts all the citizens and the police who protect citizens. And they're all of a sudden scrutinizing what's going on over here. And that's not what anybody in that substrata world wants. So I never felt certainly that anybody was going to, uh, that there was any reason to murder me. There were a few times when I felt like I was going to be misused but I wasn't. And there were a few times, I mean, maybe one or two times in that whole time where I got a vibe off of somebody that was so sketchy that it was like, is this person going to kill me for sport? But of course that's even crazy. That's something I was bringing from my, from my middle-class upbringing hmm. that like this person's so sketchy that they're just, this is going to be like the, the, the situation where he turns me loose in some stretch of forest and then hunts me with a rifle. But nobody's doing that. That's crazy. I, I you know, I, I, I was in a band with the, with a couple of guys that I loved and admired and think that are wonderful. And, and we were driving on tour one time and the conversation came up like, what's your greatest fear? And, and one of them said, you know, my, my greatest fear is to run out of gas on a stretch of road like this. And he was saying that to me because I was letting the gas gauge get really, really low. <laughs> but he also was sincere. Like that amount of, we are in this protected bubble. We have gasoline and we are driving through this, this dark unexplored territory. And the amount of gas in the tank is his lifeline between the safety of this enclosure and suddenly being tossed into a, tumultuous sea of fear and right. you know like now the truck is out of gas now we pull over it's completely dark and the wool the, the woods are full of werewolves and this is going to be a deliverance situation mm-hmm. 
or worse, right? Yeah, we're gonna, yeah. They're going to they're going to skin us. They're going to take the flesh from our bones to make their evil stew, right? And I'm like, you know, we're we're in Indiana, um, and there are weird people in Indiana. But I, I mean, if we run out of gas here, it's not going to be that far to a pretty probably a pretty nice farmer, and. I've run out of gas a lot of times on dark stretches of road and you walk along until somebody comes and helps you. I mean, honestly, that's how it, it's been for me. And I know that that, I know that that is that the contemporary critique of me saying that is that that expresses white privilege or white male privilege. And that is a very, that's a very modern critique. And I would describe it as a critique that is, that's presently in fashion. Um, because, because there's there's obviously ample reason to say that if I were a single woman or uh, or a black guy uh, or even a Korean guy, that my experience in that situation there there's a greater chance that I would be that I would find people not not as friendly. But of course, that isn't that isn't to say. And I think this is the mistake we make in a contemporary world, which is to say, if I were a woman or someone of a, of a different ethnicity, that I therefore had a 100% chance of meeting an unfriendly person, mm-hmm. right? If I were a single woman and my car broke down, I still would have a 96%, 99% chance of encountering a friendly person who was going to help me. It's just that the, that if a rapist were to drive by, I would have a greater chance of being raped. And when a rapist drove by me, I didn't see, I didn't notice that he was a rapist, right? In fact, when I was picked up by the rapist and taken to a gas station, I never, I wouldn't have known that he was capable of rape because he was just being friendly to me because I was a fellow white dude. But, but still, right, a, a single woman or a single black man walk, uh, running out of gas on the side of the road, there is still an overwhelming uh, chance that the person that they're going to meet and ask for help is going to be friendly and is going to help them. Because pe- that's what happens. People are, people are generally nice and bigots and violent people and rapists and... You know, the people that we and all of our boogeymen are are an incredible minority, you know, and there there are cultures that are bigoted. But even within those cultures, there's just total friendliness for in most cases. Right. And on a from on a one one to one basis, if you see somebody walking down the street in the middle of the night with a gas can. You the, the human kindness in everybody is is generally activated. So I, you know, and I, 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 I just, I felt so sorry for my friends because realizing that that was truly a fear. And, oh, and when, when the one guy said it, then another guy in the van, and these are people who are choosing to, to experience like rock and roll touring. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not, they're not cowering at home. They're out on the road playing in bars every night, but still it was confirmed by a second guy in the band. Like, yeah, that is a, that is a a true fear that I would run out of gas on a, on an empty stretch of road. And it just, I just extrapolated from that, that 
the, that, that feeling that the van that we're in has so much more significance to them. And the, and the fact that the motor is still running and the, and there's gasoline in the tank and there's a town up ahead, like all of that is, is really weighted and fraught that when we leave a town and head out into the dark, their anxiety rises up and, and it's not, and it doesn't abate until they can see the lights of the next town. And that, that, and I had a lot of sympathy for that. Like, wow, that would be a lot to carry. Because when I head into that dark stretch of road, there's some part of me that's like, God, I hope we run out of gas. <laughs> like that would be, that'd be great. That would, that would break the mundanity of this. And, and who knows what we'd find. And so, yeah, it's a different, it's a worldview basically. And, and I developed it when I was, when I was young enough that, you know, uh, young enough that I didn't measure risk the same way. And I didn't fear consequences. And it'd be, it would be different for me now, not, not running out of gas on a dark stretch of road, but like heading out with no destination in mind would be different for me now than it was, than it was. But knowing, knowing that I had survived it so many times, I wouldn't, I I wouldn't be anxious. I would just be like, I would be pre-tired, you know, Mm -hmm. like, because you can't decide when you're going to go to sleep in a lot of cases. If you're exhausted and you get picked up by some group of guys who are like, we're just good. We're driving an hour and a half up into the mountains to go to this crazy party. You're going to love it. You can't say, "Uh, actually, would you take me home and let's go to sleep? And so you don't get to choose. You don't get to choose when you're going to sleep. You don't get to choose what you're going to eat. And when you're really, really run down, you have to, you have to tap into that extra uh, reservoir of strength. And now at my age, I would just be just thinking about that. I'd be like, Oh my God, that would be so tiresome. I would be so, because I, I guess, I guess another thing you learn is like those parties aren't ever really that fun. <laughs> and it's <laughs> almost always better to go to sleep, to eat, eat a nice dinner and go to sleep or eat a nice right. dinner and sit around and talk to some nice people and go to sleep. You don't want to go up into the mountains with these guys and go to some crazy party. So yeah, uh, that, that, that's the trade-off where at a certain point, you know, I had that, I had that choice to make, right? At a certain point I had a choice to continue on in such a way that I would be a 40 year old with no fixed address. Mm-hmm. And, and I think if I, if maybe if I had found those parties more fun, if I had been more of an extroverted person and every one of those parties, I, I met a new girlfriend, right. And went to live with her somewhere for, for two months until, until I, I left in the middle of the morning, like, like that, you know, grabbed my bag. I was like, see you later, baby. Left a little note. It was fun. Eat a peach. But I wasn't quite that extroverted. I wasn't ready to, 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 to say, you know what? Yeah, I'll live here with you guys. Maybe this is, you know, I'm, I have a good friend that said every, I was talking to him about his, 
girlfriend. He had a lot of girlfriends. I was like, what's the deal? Like, you just met her, but you're already, you're already making plans. And he was like, I've never dated a girl that I didn't think I, that I wasn't pretty sure I was going to marry. Right. And I dated her with a lot of confidence that we were going to get married until the day that it became evident that we weren't going to get married. I was like, wow, really? You never dated anybody where you're just like, we're dating. He was like, no, why would you waste your time? That's the same as me. I was the same way. Yeah. Why would you screw around with somebody that you didn't think maybe one day you'd marry? Right. It seemed like a complete waste of time. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. And my my attitude was like, oh, well, I'm never going to get married. So I'm just, you know, I'm dating because yeah, right. By default, it, you're it would that would be impossible you would never date anyone then right exactly you're dating <laughs> you're dating somebody because you you meet somebody you like them they like you you want to spend time with one another you're going to keep doing that until it's not fun anymore but but and that's a that's that's something i've encountered in a lot of people that feeling of well, if you're not going to get married what the hell are you doing and it wasn't so much for me it wasn't so much saying must marry this person or I'm kicking her to the curb kind of thing. Mm, it was, mm. it was more like, is this the kind of person that seems like I would want to wind up with her? Like, is that foreseeable? Is it possible? Long-term relationship. I like them enough to really want to spend time and, and go the distance in some way. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I don't think that my pal was like immediately making wedding plans, right, but, right. but, but, that, that exactly. was on the table, as they say. Yeah. Is this a person that I could marry? Right. And, you know, in my case, it was like, look, I know this girl has, I mean, I've only known her for six hours, but one of the first things she told me was that she's burned down her apartment three times <laughs> and accidentally, you know, accidentally burned down her <laughs> oh apartment God. three times. And it's already marriage is probably not. Well, I'm definitely <laughs> feeling like, hmm. <laughs> for me won't to invite be her over anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or don't leave her alone. <laughs> right. Um, you know, one time left a pot on the stove, caught on fire, burned the apartment down. She moved, uh, she moved in with somebody or somebody like let her stay at their house and she left a candle burning under a, under the curtains and burned down their apartment. And then, you know, somewhere along the line managed to torch a third apartment. Uh, and you know, and you could see that she was carrying a, a, a burden in the form of, is there something wrong with me? Is it? Yeah. It's like, it's like meeting somebody that's had eight DWIs and they're like, I mean, I don't have a drinking problem. I've just been really unlucky and gotten eight DWIs. It's like, well, I think you might reevaluate the question of yeah. whether or not you have a drinking problem. And, and, you know, and, and she was carrying around that question. Like, is there something wrong with me that I burned down three separate apartments? And you go, well, I mean, it could be coincidence, but, but that's a, you know, that's a, that's a different worldview. And I think as a, as a hitchhiker and vagabond, if I had had that same thing of like, well, maybe this is, you know, I met this girl last night at this crystal meth party, but I think she's great. And maybe we can make a life together. Why would I leave? Why would I leave Oklahoma tomorrow? Yeah. Where am I going? I'm not going anywhere. Maybe I'm an Oklahoman now. Uh, but I didn't have that. I I did have the, I, I was estranged from people enough and I did have the, 
uh, my eyes were on the horizon, maybe a little bit more. So that when it came time to make that decision, like, am I going to be a 40 year old with no fixed address, just going from one lily pad to another? And each lily pad has some crazy times on it. But in the end, I'm only going to move on. Or do I want to be somebody that stops and gets a driver's license and like lives somewhere? Yeah. And I did, I did make that choice um, at a certain point and it was a conscious choice. You know, I was, I was choosing to domesticate and not be domesticated, but domesticate. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess, I guess be domesticated by forces, but not, nobody ever grabbed me by the scruff and said, you're going to stop. It was just like, ah, I see how it is. You know, there were several, several things that inspired that. And one of them was recognizing that recourse to the law is a, is a gift. And if you live outside of it, you then don't also have recourse to it. And I believe in the, in the law to a certain extent, and I like to have recourse to it. And the, and the people that don't have recourse to it band together in outlaw motorcycle gangs, because when they're wronged, they have an, they have a, a structure, an infrastructure that can try to right that wrong on their behalf because they don't call the police. And that's not a place to that if you're a if you're a loner and a lone traveler, you know, your only recourse is to yourself. And that that is exhausting. And there's a there's a lot of opportunity for injustice that can't be redressed. So that was that was one of the things that made me feel like there's a there there is a comfort to living inside the light dome that is a great relief. We would like to thank Wealthfront, an automated investment service with nearly $3 billion in client assets under management. They manage a diversified, continually rebalanced portfolio of index funds for people just like us, regular human beings who maybe don't have a few million dollars to invest. That's the thing that they do. They make it so that you can start with like 500 bucks and get the same access to this investing intelligence that they put together that you used to have to walk in with at least a million bucks and you'd pay at least 1% per year in management fees. Wealthfront is different. They charge no trading commissions and they're completely free for accounts under 10,000 bucks. But wait, they actually have a special deal for listeners of this show. But if you go over that for accounts larger than that, it's only 0.25% per year for their management fee. Now, this is not like a short-term thing. This is not like, oh, I'm doing market timing or day trading. No, this is for regular people who want to put money away for their retirement, for their kids' education, for their future. And people always used to tell me when I was just starting out in my career, oh, you know what? Save some money, save some money, invest, invest, invest. And I was like, how, how? 
And anytime I would try to meet, and I tried several times to meet with like a, one of these investment banker type people who are like, you know, gonna really manage the money and make, make it work for you. They would always say, oh, you know, really need a lot more money than you have. We can't really work with you. We need, you need to have $500,000 to invest. And what if you have 500? Wealthfront, no problem. Go to wealthfront.com slash five by five. And instead of that 10K, Wealthfront will manage your first $15,000 entirely free of charge for life. That means in addition to never paying commissions, no hidden fees, you also won't pay any management fees on your first 15K. That's a big deal. Doesn't matter what size account you have. So go check it out. And remember that that, that management fee is only 0.25% per year and you get access to all their amazing features. It's all online. It's basically like you chuck money in a bucket and they just make it work for you. So go check it out, wealthfront.com slash five by five and get that first 15K entirely free of charge. Does being a parent kind of change put this into a different perspective for you as well? I mean, I made that decision a long time before I was a parent. And being a parent actually has turned my, turned my, my, um, like I'm looking outside the light dome now more than I was because before she was born, I was living within, um, I was living within the sphere and the stars in the sky were blotted out by the light pollution of the city. Mm -hmm. I'd forgotten that they were there, but I felt like I was still doing it voluntarily and still I was, I, I was here and I was fine and I was paying my electric bill and my water bill, but I knew that I could not do those things. Too, if I wanted to go out of the of Thunderdome, um, you know, back out into the into the wastes, but with <clears throat> with a child, as I look into the future and I see all the mechanisms and structures that are waiting there to to claw her down into a, a compliant kindergartner and a child that is being measured by standardized tests and a child that is be, that is having her attendance measured right and a child that is and you know and, and she's she's vaccinated I vaccinate the shit out of her because I believe in science but the but the social sciences of, you know, she's got to learn. She, it's not even a question of like, she's got to learn and learn to raise her hand to ask a question or learn how to cooperate. Like, I, yes, that is the domestication of the tribe. But all this business of, well, if she has five unexplained absences, that's going to affect her final grade. Mm-hmm. I just my hackles go up, the fur on me goes up, and I'm just like, fuck you, unexplained absences. Are you shitting me? Like, she's going to have more than five unexplained absences (laughs) with me as her father. (laughs) 
Like there is nothing that I, that I honor more than the unexplained absence. (laughs) And if you, and if, if we're walking into a school or a culture where that's just on the, that's on page one of the little booklet they hand you. Hey, welcome to school. Welcome to American school. Our presumption, our first presumption is that we have more to teach your child on Wednesday than you do. Oh, right. And if she's not here on Wednesday because you have some friend in town who happens to work for NASA and your NASA friend wants to take you down to the airport because his special experimental plane that he's trying to fly across the Pacific based only on like vegetable oil, he wants to show it to you and he wants to show it to your eight-year-old. But, but that's the day that you know, that we're having somebody from the science center come in and show you a Petri dish with single celled, uh, animals in it. And there's going to be a test on that. And that's the most exciting thing that's happened in school this week. And she can't miss it because she's not going to know the test. I'm going to be like, sorry, I have, I have access to opportunities to educate my kid. And so, and so then it's, then it's back to that like outside the dome question. If I want to live in, in this society and benefit from it and have recourse to it, do I also have to subject my child permanently to that and, and, and then subject myself to it? And if I don't, then I, I, I have to accept that, I, that there's a part of it that I... I I lose, I lose the regularity of public school and the dependableness of it. Sure. Because if I'm stepping into homeschooling, then that's a tremendous commitment that, you know, that has a lot of responsibility. And am I prepared to embrace that? You know, that's a form of, of, of domestication too, of a different sort. But, but I, but I, so I'm struggling, you know, I struggle with the, the idea that she's going to go into junior high one day and knowing what a, knowing what a Lord of the flies situation junior high is mm-hmm. and knowing how much better a time she and I could have outside of junior high, just if doing nothing else, just traveling. I mean, just living in a hotel in St. Louis and going out and walking around all day, you'd do better and learn more. So, you know, am I looking outside the dome and thinking like, ah, maybe we'll just go, maybe we'll just go to Montana and get a little shack and I'll teach her how to shoot. (laughs) I'm not worried like a lot of my friends are about what college she goes to. Right. I'm not worried about if I do that, is she going to be at a disadvantage in the job marketplace? I just don't, I'm just not worried about it. She's going to be fine. I know a lot of people that are just fine who, who didn't have any of the supposed advantages and, and the people that, that I know or that, that we know in common who have Ivy league educations, I see the advantage. They have it easier because they have an, they have an, they have a, a business card that says Ivy league education. No one can ever take it away. And at 18 years old, 
the work that they'd done up until that point had given them this advantage and and they were going to have it the rest of their lives it was like a it was like a little star on their epaulet um and so i see that advantage but it's an advantage in certain circles and not in other circles and it's an advantage that you kind of can't you can't compare it to the advantage of having confidence or the advantage of not being afraid to sleep outside. Yeah, there's just no comparison. And I envy that Ivy League advantage when I'm in a situation where, where it plays. And I, and I wish I had that card too. That I could say in those moments like, well, sorry, fellas, I'm going to go in through this door because this is the, this is the door that I'm allowed in and you can wait out here. I'll be, I'll try and, I'll try and put some chicken wings in a napkin and bring them back out to you. But, you know, because, because on the, it's just, a, it's a bunch of old, good old, good old folks on the other side here. And so I've got to go in and to go to this cocktail party, but I've been, I've been with my Ivy league friends in situations where it didn't play. It wasn't a card. And then it's really a question of, of, of their character. And, and fortunately, like I know, I mean, my friends who are from that world also have a tremendous amount of character. Um, so it's never been a situation where I've had to, where I've had to step in and say like, all right, all right, I'll handle this. Um, but that, but I think that's rarer, you know, to have both, to have both things. So I, you know, so I'm not worried about whether or not she gets into the University of Pennsylvania. I just remember feeling so beaten down my whole childhood by a system I didn't understand and didn't respect and knew my parents didn't respect. But, but we all seemed powerless to powerless to challenge it. And so the the lesson was always like, ah, you just got to endure this. And then one day you get to decide what time you go to bed and one day you get to decide what, what to have for dinner. You just have to, you know, just have to bow your head. I mean, it's and, very, what, what you're saying is, is fairly anti-establishment. Hmm. You think? Yeah. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's, you know, but it, it, I think it, it, it's so much about where like the road that you've traveled because this construct that we live in that you're talking about the one that says like you should go to school and work your way up and try to get into a college and somehow if you don't if that's not the path that you're on or if you don't go to college or if you don't finish college that your chances of being a complete human being, a functioning human being, you you will never reach your full potential. You will never really be happy. You'll mm. never make you'll never make any money. Mm-hmm. And you'll never be able to to have a comfortable life. Mm-hmm. At the very least, let alone a glorious life. 
mm-hmm. our life filled with glory, glory, and riches of on a personal, emotional, or physical level, and that's that's definitely the construct that most of us uh, live in, yeah, or that we see around us, and. I know a handful of people who either didn't go to college at all or went to college and quit who mm-hmm. are incredibly successful, whether you measure it on the on personal level of their life, their family, their happiness, or business or financial success. And that kind of flies in the face of that model that, you better go to college. I know a lot of people who have gone to college and are either doing something completely different than what they went to school for or aren't doing anything with their degree at all and are, and are, and are more, they went to college because maybe their parents made them go to college or because, you know, there was a server at the restaurant last night and I was talking with her. She had this cool crystal. I was talking about her crystal <laughs> and... You know, she talked about like how she made the setting herself out of like copper wire and everything else. Sounds like my kind of gal. Yeah, you know, you would have liked her. And, you know, like I, I, she had cool tattoos, cool glasses. And, you know, I, I was like, oh, where, where'd you get that crystal? You know, like, where did you get it? And, and, and she said, oh, yeah, I think I got it in here. Maybe it was this town. I can't remember. And, it's like, cause after my, after I got my degree in college, I went and I lived over here for a while and I lived over here for a while and you know, she's, she's been out of school for a, a, a number of years and she's happily employed at one of my favorite restaurants and you know, like she seemed much happier than most of the people that I know who are in nine to five jobs. Now, maybe that's the act because she, you know, she wants a tip. I don't know. But she seemed legitimately happy. And most of the people that I know that are going to nine to five jobs and spending, you know, 45 minutes in traffic or on their commute each way in the morning and at night. Like that, they don't seem happy. And, you know, maybe there's stuff she can't afford. Maybe there's stuff she places she wants to go that she hasn't figured out a way to go to. I'm assuming I don't know, but it sure didn't seem like it. <laughs> she, she seemed pretty happy, you know. But we have this we have this goal of like, well, you need you need to do you need to do these things, you know. Why? Well, why? Because like you're this is what you're supposed to do. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, and and clearly that's one of many different paths that you can go on. I remember when I asked one of my friends who uh, is a very successful, well-known and, you know, pretty well-off designer right now. And I asked him about college once we were talking about it. I said, did you go to school? He's like, yeah, yeah. I said, oh, you know, what degree did you get? He's like, oh, I I never finished. And he felt real bad about it. And yet here he was at this design career that anyone would be envious of. And, you know, still he, like, he felt bad about it. Like that was the right thing to do. And somehow quitting was, that was like bad. Leaving school was somehow bad. Because that's, we're, you know, we're programmed to think that. 
Well, yeah, I mean, programmed. <clears throat> I mean, obviously, you're you're addressing the the happiness question and the success question, and, yeah. and conflating them as we all do. Success or happiness isn't possible without success, which of course it is. And 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 I guess you know the <clears throat> the alternative nation, and I think that this that this really, again, became part of the, the mainstream popular culture in the 60s was the notion that happiness was separate from success mm-hmm. and that happiness was actually the goal of life. And, and that, that mentality got a lot of airplay such that we associated with the 60s and it, and it sparked an entire separate culture or subculture and right. for a long time it for a long time it was a subculture and then it became also institutionalized in a way like yoga now is not is not really that alternative not at all it's just become assimilated yoga in 1979 was pretty radical <laughs> outsider right. behavior and vegetarianism is no longer alternative, exactly. It's just another one on a list of choices of how to live. And it used to be when the when those when that was becoming, you know, mainstream at first, that vegetarianism and yoga and and these practices took you outside of mainstream culture and it set you on a completely different path where mm-hmm. you were seeking something other than happiness in success and materialism. And now, and what that's, what's been so confusing to me in the course of my own life was watching yoga and vegetarianism, uh, gradually be considered compatible with a life of materialism. Right. So that now you see yoga as a very bourgeois behavior practiced by complete materialists and vegetarianism has become in some ways, you know, very, and it maybe in, it maybe always was bougie, but like, like not just, not just bourgeois dropout sons and daughters of rich people who, who feel like, who feel the security of that trust fund waiting for them. And so they can go live in a squat, but people who genuinely actively pursue materialist lives who then buy a very expensive vegetarian food as a, as like a, a component of it. So that watching some of those radical ideas of the sixties also become commodities has been very confusing to me, frankly, because, and, and, and I don't practice anti-materialism. I mean, my, my thrift store life is still materialist. I'm still seeking happiness in some 1960s blazer that I found for $5. Right. That, you know, that does, that does mean all these different things to me, but it's still a thing that I'm trying to fill a hole in myself with. But when you think about your kid 
you think about where they're going to, how you're going to place them or how you're going to set them free in the world and say like, here's really the realm of possibility. And that person that's a, that's a graphic artist friend of yours or a designer, you know, how would you get to that point where you're doing your own art and your own work and that is providing you what you need in life and giving you a feeling both of accomplishment also providing you enough that you're not a, that you don't have to worry primarily about basic needs allows you to live within the culture without feeling like every day you have to walk out in battle right but at no point along the way do you have to sit with your head bowed while soul destroying concepts are pushed on top of your head like a yoga mat that's being used to smother you like all the effort that went that goes into throwing off that burden in order to live as a free person what if you could just eliminate that whole process of like the years and years of of having that garbage put on top of you and then the years and years it takes to throw it off Mm. Just get, just go the whole distance feeling a sense of, uh, you know, a sense of belonging or a sense that your instincts aren't wrong or a sense of freedom to play. And that seems, you know, that even just using the word play in that sense seems kind of hippie and alternative and like get real. But why, you know, and, and, why, why is life not, we, we have all these tremendous riches now and not just in the West, like the, not everybody has access to antibiotics, but a lot of people do. Right. Not everybody has access to clean water, but a lot more people do than even a few years ago, let alone 50 years ago. You know, like the riches that the abundance that we have access to now unprecedented abundance that's been that's a product of science and it's a product of 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 compassion you know it's a product of compassion and for every for every pharmaceutical company that is trying to uh that's trying to maximize their profits in africa by by selling their medicine at a premium there's an NGO that is trying to counteract that, you know, that's trying to remember a few years ago, the, these NGOs that were trying to get a computer into every child's hands, you know, they were going to Nigeria with these little computers made out of basic materials and trying to the little lap, give, the little green color, laptop. little green laptops yeah. that they're trying to give to every child in you know, in school around the world so that they had access to this, this brave new world. Right. You know, and that's a, one, that's, that was the one laptop per child. Yeah. Thing. What, what a nice idea. And also one driven by compassion and driven by interest in humans. And so, so it's not unreasonable to think that one of the products of all that wealth and compassion would be that we also were more able to not have to, not have to, bathe in fire and shame to chop us down to size so that we would fit into the 
fit into the hole that's shaped for us. Yeah. So how do you do that? How do you do that in, within public schools? And I mean, I, you know, obviously you go to work trying to reform public schools, but, but that's a rabbit hole. So, I mean, nonconformist, particularly now where, where conformity has done this magic trick of turning all nonconformity into another product. All the, all the ideas that, that I understood when I was 16 to be like ideas that threatened the establishment. If you, if you chose to even to do art at all, Mm. You, that was threatening to the establishment. That right. was your middle finger to Ronald Reagan. And, you know, and I've, I've said this before, even on our program, that, that Apple computers did this great, great, great job of saying our little computers are incredibly powerful art-making tools. And so you're not buying this thing just to sit like a cog and do computer programming. You're buying this because it'll let you be a painter and a musician and a, and you can do this creative work. And so they put these very creative workstations on in everybody's home that they could. And in a lot of ways, it was flattering us because I bought this thing. I could make a movie on this. Right. I could make... I could make a record album and a movie on this. And even though I'm never going to do that, I could, I have the tools. I bought the expansion package even. And so I am an artist in waiting, let's say. And what, and so art no longer felt like it was the province of these, these, uh, dangerous, outsiders it was something that was in all of our it was in our den right and it defanged it and commodified it right because how do you do art now if you don't have a macintosh and you see that all the time right people that are like well i can't afford a new computer so i haven't really started work on my movie and you know that <laughs> That notion of like, you need the new, you need a new computer. If you're going to make a record album, you need to buy the expansion package. You need to get the cloud storage because you can't do that stuff anymore. You can't just have a, have a legal pad and a pen and do a novel. You have to have the home publishing, uh, suite. Sure. And so it introduced this intermediary of, expensive technology. So it took away the power of art and it also made, it made the paintbrushes really expensive. And so all of the, all of the ideals that were there when I was coming up, which maybe were misplaced, you know, I was having this conversation with, with Ira from not a surf, the drummer of not a surf the other night. Um, and he was saying, you know, at, at one point the band, the Plimsolls did a, did a, like a, a TV commercial, or not even a TV commercial. They were, they were featured in a print ad for Miller beer 
in like a one quarter page print ad for Miller beer in, in Rolling Stone magazine. And according to Ira, like that was the end of their career. They had sold out and, and it was over for them based on this one quarter page ad in Rolling Stone. Like nobody wanted anything to do with them anymore. And we all in my indie rock culture know that at least our perception is that that all changed the day that the, the shins had a song in a McDonald's commercial. Right. And I, and I remember that as the shot that was heard around the world. <laughs> and we all remember it that way because the shins were the coolest band in America at that moment. And they did it and they suffered no consequences. We all were like shocked and appalled. And we looked around the room and it was like, are you, do you see what I see? And like, what are we going to, what's going to happen? And nothing happened. And it was like, oh shit. Uh, what were we so scared of? And what we were scared of was that our music was going to be commodified and, and turned into a McDonald's ad. Yeah. And the shins did it and they made a bunch of money. It was like, well, but there's all that money they made. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, like the whole, the whole thing switched around. But, but along the way, I mean, now it's hard to say like, am, am I anti-establishment? Well, yeah. What, what does that look like? I mean, is it that, I drive a vintage car. That seems crazy. It's still a car. Right. Do I have to go all the way to like living in a dugout <laughs> in the ground? Like that's not very cool. I mean, I, I have friends that did that, that were so anti-establishment that they were like, I'm going to live in a tree, man. And they did live in a tree. How? Like up in a tree, like in a tree house? Yeah, I had a I had a friend named Matt Parch who decided that he could not be in the he he was so anti-authoritarian that he could not live in the world. He did not want recourse to the law. He did not want recourse to indoor plumbing because he thought it was dishonest in some way. Because you, he understood you could not flush the toilet without acknowledging the infrastructure, acknowledging that you flush that toilet and it does not disappear. It goes down a tube to another tube and those tubes were put in place by people and it's paid for by taxes yeah. and it goes to a place where they it's process. It's like you're part of the system, man. You cannot avoid it if you go to the bathroom inside. Right. And so he moved to, what was it? Not Steamboat Springs. He was in, he moved to Alta or something, or he moved to like Wyoming and found a giant pine tree, <laughs> like a big one. And he climbed up into it and made and like feathered a nest, basically built a living environment in this tree, not high, high up, but like, you know, 25 feet off the ground when it was still That's on pretty a, high up, you know, but, ba but not like 
80 feet, but like up high enough that you're not really visible from the ground, but the branches are still big enough that you can create, you know, he wove some, I never visited him there, but, and he had, he had some sort of relationship with the ski resort where (laughs) he was able to do some kind of work, carpentry work of some kind that got him his basic needs, food and so forth and allowed him to go skiing, which was, which he somehow felt like was, uh, exempt. Like skiing was a natural right. And I'm not sure what his relationship to the chairlifts were, you know. <laughs> right. They're powered he, by something, right? Sure. He was a telemarker. I'm not sure whether he telemarked to the top every day or whether whether he would make an exception for riding the lift. Yeah. Uh, you know, like I never really dug that deeply into it because because I was maybe somewhat, he didn't either, you know. Well, he did, but I mean I was I was still somewhat stuck on the tree thing. Um, but he liked sleeping outside. Even even in Alaska, he wouldn't stay inside of his parents' house. He would go out in the winter and build uh, an igloo for all intents and purposes. Not like a, he didn't build an igloo like that you would see in a comic book, but he would build a snow house. <laughs> and the fact that he was living on his parents' property suggested a lot of things, like taxes were being paid. But he could, he needed to feel that much more outside than I did. I mean, I would come home and fucking stay in my parents' house. Are you kidding me? Thank God. Uh, the refrigerator and the (laughs) oven and the blankets and stuff. I mean, I wasn't trying to be, but, but I did feel that pressure. I mean, I did understand that there was, that I wasn't being pure and he needed to feel that much more pure. They lived in that tree for, like three different seasons, I think. He was known around town as the guy. Lived up in the tree. And that and at a ski resort, there are a lot of people like that, right? That are not living in a tree, but like, oh, he's the one living in a tree and that and he's the one that uh, you know, that does nitrous oxide every morning. Uh, and the and this one this one over here, you know, like has a romantic relationship with their Siberian husky. That's what ski resorts are, or at least used to be. I- I, I don't know if they're like that still. Maybe not. That that's the those are the ski resorts that that I grew up in. I think maybe they're completely so expensive now that none of those kooks are still there. Yeah. But uh, but what ha- ended up happening to Matt was that little by little, he, in order to maybe in order to counteract the loneliness and suffering, he went deeper and deeper into drugs and became a druggie and then got into a relationship that was abusive. And then ultimately, you know, now he lives in Hawaii and he works as a carpenter and he has an apartment and he has a couple of kids and it's, he's just like, it all got beat out of him because there's no such thing as purity. And right. if you and if you're trying for if purity is your standard, all you can do is fail in the long run. And that failure is so soul destroying that you just end up somewhere that is as bad or worse than you 
than what used to be your nightmare. Not that being a carpenter is bad, but, but I, I, but I know like he is, you know, he's, he's hand to mouth working as a roofer and living in a, in an unfriendly apartment and none of his friends will talk to him anymore because his purity caused him to alienate himself from everybody. And that's not to throw my friend under the bus that I have so many friends that went similar routes where they where a, the transition to adulthood was was so difficult they just and they couldn't make it they didn't make it but you made it sorta yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. no I, I did. mean if you were to think back before you sort of had your before you kind of went went into your I don't know what the right word is for it, but when you were you were kind of on the outs with yourself before that time period, if you had if we could interview that John and say what were you, where do you think you want to be when you're forty forty five? I mean, do you think you are there? Have you exceeded it? Did you meet it? Are you where you were kind of hoping you'd be if you ever thought that way? the the problem for me was i think a, a common problem um although again statistically who knows how common it is but common among my in, in my world was the um was just the the problem of being told at a young age that you could accomplish anything which i don't think is true and i think it's crazy to tell kids that because you can't accomplish anything you can through hard work for through diligent work accomplish some things um but to say over and over you can do anything you can do anything is to is it's like a gypsy curse because as the as the child gets older yeah you know they're bearing this burden at least I interpreted that to mean you should do everything. And that was not the, that was not the path that, that best suited me. You know, yeah, if, some, yeah. if, 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 uh, if, if, if the message I'd received was, if you find something you love and do it, congratulations. If you make one nice thing in the world, you have succeeded. If you make one person happier, you're doing a good job. Try to do that every day. You know, try to lift the burden for someone else every day. And if you, and if you see something you want to make, or if you see a way that you want to proceed, there's nothing that can stop you. If people tell you you can't, they're wrong. But that's very different from you can do anything. Because I, because Uh, when I was 25, if you had said, what do you want to do? What do you want to be when you're 45? My mind was just, it was just this Willy Wonka chocolate factory of, well, I mean, by that point I will have, um, become a millionaire mm -hmm. and a world, uh, world renowned surgeon mm -hmm. and expert 
juggler and close-up magician and uh, like plumber and HVAC expert and biologist and chemist. So at that point, what will there be left to do except become the president of the United States? Right. And to have experienced firsthand how life just toddles along and you can't also do that and sleep whatever hours you prefer. Um, and now I look around and the people I admire are the ones that when they were young, they didn't feel like they had to fight the whole world. Mm -hmm. They were just like, I like to draw and nobody stopped them. Right. And so they drew and they drew because they liked it. And then they drew until they were good at it. And then they were like, I'm actually pretty good at this. You know, there was never a, there was never a, they never had that feeling or if they did, it wasn't hard to overcome that feeling of sitting there drawing and looking up and going, what am I doing? Why am I wasting my time drawing when I could be uh, doing 50 other things that I don't like to do as much as I like to draw? You know, that even that feeling of, of like, I like to do this. Mm -hmm. And then, so you question whether it's valid. Right. Because you like it. Maybe it, that means it should be at most a hobby. You shouldn't devote your yeah. life to that. Yeah. Or like that. It's too easy. It's too easy to do that thing that you like. You need to be out there challenging yourself and, and, uh, and fighting somehow. So I don't, when I was 25, I, I had, totally unrealistic expectations. And I had no sense that happiness was possible other than that, that the other than a feeling of gratification at having done it all. Yeah. But like happiness, I don't, I mean, I, if you'd asked me, will you be married one day and have kids? I would have said, absolutely. Of course. If you had said, will you find someone that you love and, be enveloped in the love that's possible with another person and like con contented and fulfilled in a relationship, a love relationship. I would have just looked at you like you had been speaking Chinese to me. <laughs> it just wasn't like, what is that? What are you talking about? What does that mean? How would that, I mean, I will have a, I'll have, I'll be married and have kids and we will, yeah, of course we'll be in love or I mean, why would you get married if you weren't in love? But what are you talking about? All this fulfillment business. So, so here I am. And, and a big part of what, uh, if I am achieving happiness now, it is in direct um, relationship to the amount that I am succeeding at demystifying all of that garbage. Like the happiness is not based on what I'm achieving. It's based on, am I able to roll back that carpet mm -hmm. enough to reveal the happiness that's underneath it? And I, you know, I fight it every day. Just try to roll back all of that craziness and say, look what you have. You have such a wonderful, you have so much wonderful. You have a wonderful world that you've made and you have all this wonderful about all I'm struggling even now not to use the word potential to say like, you have this wonderful potential to be happy. Why don't you just take it? It's just like, fuck the word potential. It's the, it's so evil potential. <laughs> <Blah>. <laughs>
that you know that word was used as a as a bludgeon when I was young. I never want to say it. Potential. It's like you know, just like just do, <laughs> just do without worrying about about all this. Um. I mean, I don't want to say without worrying about the future, but like, what are we making, right? What are we as, as people making and how can you be a part of that? How do, how do you be a part of that community? And that's so much different than saying, than looking at your own success as distinct from everyone else's success. And I think that's, I think that's ultimately what it is for me. Like, is your success part of everyone else's success right. that we are moving in a direction where we are all, or trying to succeed as a group of people, try to try to relieve pain and release pleasure. Are you part of that? And are you succeeding at that? Are we succeeding as opposed to like, am I succeeding within this you know, within this warlike state of competition with other people to, to swim to the top somehow, either by my own ingenuity or by my uh, performance, uh, my dutiful performance of tasks. And I, I mean, maybe, you know, we, if we're an anthill, dutiful performance of tasks is, is also in, it's part of the plan. It's increasing the, it's relieving pain and increasing pleasure. Somebody's got to do the carpentry. 